I think it's incredible. The amount of, of the passion that is from the employees, from the guests that come, the longevity when you talk about third generation coming to, to Mount Snow is phenomenal. You just don't have that in the West, and people always pair and contrast. And I'll say that the, the vertical at the mountains in the East is the same as it is in the West. You're just starting from a higher base up there. I mean, there's long trailer ride, there's long runs. It's fantastic skiing. But the, the people and the passion, again, and the history are something you just don't have in the West. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Today, welcoming Vail Resorts to the program for the first time. First, though, a reminder to please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. Other ways to get involved, drop me an iTunes review. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook at the Storm Skiing Journal. Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large format print title celebrating mountain culture. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10 for 10% off subscriptions. Sign up now to make sure you get the first issue. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. The Mountain Gazette returns in November in print form for the first time in eight years. These issues will sell out. Grab your subscription today over at mountaingazette.com. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 29, Tracy Bartles, Vice President and General Manager of Mount Snow, Vermont. If you skied Vermont, chances are you've skied Mount Snow. As you drive north, it's the first big-time mountain you encounter in New England. As far as big mountains go, Mount Snow is fairly tame terrain-wise, but it has a lot going for it. A massive trail network, a big, high-capacity lift system, the absolutely knockout park system in Corinthia, and a really fun atmosphere. If you want to see the frantic energy of northeast skiing distilled into a ski slope, stop by Mount Snow on a midwinter Saturday. It's a headliner in Vail Resorts' northeast resort network, and probably a big reason why Vail picked up Peak Resorts last year. And the place has a new boss this year, Tracy Bartles, who has been with the company since 2000. She took over Mount Snow this spring after a season at Mount Sunapee as GM. It's a big job, and Tracy has been locked into getting the mountain ready for a very different kind of winter, all while getting to know the ski area and the people who run it. Let's hear it. My guest today was named Vice President and General Manager of Mount Snow, Vermont in March, with 20 lifts serving 86 runs and 10 terrain parks spread across 600 acres. Mount Snow is one of the largest ski areas in New England. She has worked for Vail Resorts for more than 20 years, most recently as General Manager of Mount Sunapee, New Hampshire. Tracy Bartles is my guest. Tracy, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to get to talk with you. First of all, congratulations on taking the top job at one of Vail's top Northeast mountains. How are you settling in up there at Mount Snow? You know, it's been an interesting time for a transition. Um, so we've been working hard on, you know, just simple things like getting to know the, the Mount Snow team, the community and, you know, other area stakeholders and, and all things COVID that that's been a little difficult. So I've seen a lot more people 
from you know on the computer screen than I've actually met in person. Mm-hmm. So um, that being said, right, the COVID protocols and all that are, are extremely important for us to to follow and to manage. So one of the, the huge advantages for I think this summer was we did start up operations with scenic chairlift rides and a golf course. So I was able to be out and meet some of our guests and a lot of our employees, um, you know, in a physically distanced manner with a cloth face covering on. So it was uh, awesome to be able to do that this summer, too. Yeah, you really started there at a very interesting moment, it, not just in the in the mountains history, but in our country's history where everything was really remote and shut down. I believe you were named to this job in late March and started in early April. Were you even able to go up to the mountain at first or were you running that whole operation remotely for the first few weeks? For the first few weeks, it was all remote. Um, I was at Mount Sunapee in the wintertime. And so um, I was doing a lot from New Hampshire um, for probably the first month for sure. And, and when were you able to actually get down there? What, what was it that allowed you to be able to do that? So I had quarantined in Vermont, uh, I mean, in New Hampshire. So I was able to travel to Vermont um, because I hadn't <laughs> been out and about doing anything in New Hampshire either. So with that, I could come. And then I also had a, a company condo that I could stay in that mm-hmm. also helped me isolate from other people in Vermont. Um, so that way I could at least, you know, drive around and look at the area, you know, walk, hike the mountain, um, that kind of stuff by myself to kind of get to learn about the area and that kind of stuff, which was a huge, I think, uh, benefit for me. Um, at the same time, super difficult because I really value connection um, with staff, with the community, with our guests. Um, so, you know, developing those connections was tough. And how long was it until your staff could begin to come back onto the resort grounds and actually start to do their jobs and you could meet them in person? Um, It was probably the end of May. You know, we did furlough some staff um, and it was probably we started to bring people back end of May, mid-June from furlough to, to actually work in operations so that we could open the scenic chairlift ride you know, right at the beginning of July, and the golf course opened mid-June. So it was, you know, I was a good six or eight weeks into the role before we could bring back a lot of the workers. The the senior leadership was on the whole time, um, and we were all pitching in, kind of mowing grass early on and doing all kinds of mm. different activities to, to keep things ready to go and, and ready to open for the summer. Maybe not the worst set of circumstances, right? Because as, as someone who's just getting to know that mountain, for the first time, I mean, getting your hands dirty and getting down on the ground and doing some of these jobs, I, I, I would, I would think that would help, right? Oh, absolutely, and uh, it's also fun <laughs> um, in a different sort of a way. So it, it was great, I think, especially like during a COVID year, to actually get out and you know do physical like hard labor was absolutely amazing. Yeah, it takes your mind off it a little bit and, and just gives you different kind of work to focus on. So so since you've been there, Tracy, has it just been all COVID all the time? Or have you had a chance to get acquainted with the operations of the resort just as it normally runs so you can kind of understand what you need to change? You know, Mount Snow has been operated really well um, in the past. You know, it is one of the premier resorts in the Northeast. So uh, 
I don't know that um, change is necessarily the right thing. Um, and obviously, like you said, like it's been a lot of, of COVID um, because we want to make sure that we're ensuring, you know, the full winter season. So that has been a, an absolute, like, laser-focused priority for us because we want to make sure we're staying open all winter long. Um, but, uh, you know, even saying that, we are looking through the, the master development plan. So ski areas operate especially on a forest service with a master development plan, and then Act 250 also has a development plan. So we've been going through that, and so then that's been key also for me to learn about what's been done in the past, you know, decade or more at Mount Snow, all the different development that has taken place. And then we can really evaluate how those 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 things have impacted the guest experience. So then we can look forward to the next, to the future, and then make the right plans for, you know, where we need to, to do the most improvements to really continue to, to provide the best guest experience possible. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute because uh, we'll get to COVID in a minute, and, and obviously that's been a huge focus. But as you look into the, the short and long-term development of Mount Snow, what are some of your priorities as you envision what this mountain could be 5, 10, 15 years from now? Yeah, like I said, we've been kind of going through what that master development plan has and, and what we need to do. So I don't really have a timeline or an act, actual, like, we're going to do A, B, and C at this point. We're still looking through all the infrastructure. So some of the stuff, you know, people are probably aware that we did a huge snowmaking upgrade in the past um, with, a, a you know, a 120 million gallon snowmaking pond that is absolutely amazing. So we've spent a lot of money in the past to upgrade that. Um, that being said, we're continuing to invest in snowmaking to get low energy technology that's still replacing some of the older systems. Um, and, and I think we'd love to see more automation in snowmaking in the future. Um, but I don't, again, have a timeline for that. Um, and then lift infrastructure is always a big one that we get asked about, too. Um, we do have some older lifts, but just because a lift is old doesn't mean it needs to be replaced. I'll say for um, every guest who we have that maybe says something about an older lift, we also have uh, another guest who, who touts how that's, it's great because it helps you, you know, get more snow on a powder day or, get you know, get more tracks on a powder day. Um and so we do take a very analytical approach, and so we're just starting to gather the data for what it means for our lift. So it's not only age of the lift, but how long are our lift lines at different places, how much maintenance do we have to put in, how many hours do the lifts operate every year, how many guests even ride the lift. So, you know, so we're evaluating all of those kind of factors for our lifts so we can make the best, again, possible decision for the guest experience. And then the other one that comes up all the time is lodges. And and how, again, can we improve our guest flow and experience in the lodge to give people a, a good at lodge experience as well? So we're gathering all the data, and and we'll continue to build out that plan on what makes the best decision to help our guests enjoy Mount Snow even more. Yeah, no, no question that snowmaking system is amazing, and that helped Mount Snow open as early as October in some recent years. Uh, that's obviously not happening this year just because of all the different factors going on. Um, as far as the lifts go, there's one pod in particular uh, over on the north face where you have two lifts. Uh, the new one is Challenger from 1982. Uh, the older one is is uh, Outpost from 1963. And I had the GM of 
Sugarbush on last week, and he has several old lifts. And he said, look, they're older lifts, but they run well. We've maintained them well. Uh, are you happy with the, the condition of those two lifts in that pod, at least for now? The um, lift maintenance team at Mount Snow does an incredible job, and I have great faith that they're doing everything possible to maintain those lifts. So right now, and based off of numbers that I've seen, I've never seen those lifts actually operate, but as far as numbers I've seen, they have a, a great consistency for how much they operate um, and how little downtime they have. So I have every confidence in those lifts. And as far as the lodges go, uh, Peak Resorts built a brand new lodge for Mount Snow not too long ago. Uh, where would you see the potential expansion opportunities or, or renovation opportunities for your lodging infrastructure? Obviously, the main base lodge has a lot of um, different sort of rooms and experience and not good flow through it. It's one of the oldest buildings there. Um, so I think that would be um, the priority just so right as guests enter into that portal, if they're on a normal year, if they're coming into the lodge, that, that would be a huge focus for us. And, and that lodge also sees the most guest visitation of any of the other um, facilities that we have. So I want to shift here and talk about your history with Vail Resorts. Uh, you've been at Vail, as I mentioned in the introduction, for more than 20 years at this point. Can you just run us through your career? Uh, where did you start and how did you get to where you are now? Sure. So I started in February of 2000 as a little kid ski instructor. Um, so I taught the littlest of kids, the, the three to five-year-olds, um, at the base of Peak 8 in Brackenridge. And then I moved up throughout ski school into a variety of different roles, um, where I was managing the Peak 8 Kids base area for my last role with ski school and did the whole, you know, instructor certification path and all of that kind of stuff. And in the summers while I was teaching skiing, I worked in food and beverage, um, managing weddings at Breckenridge. Mm. And then um, I switched. So I have a degree in engineering, and I switched mm -hmm. over um, from ski school to then a more full-time year-round role as a health and safety manager at Keystone Resort. And I was there doing that for about three years and then went back to Breckenridge as the health and safety manager for Breckenridge for three years. And then I moved over into the senior director of mountain operations at Keystone. And mm -hmm. again, I was there for about three years before I went to Mount Sunapee as the GM last fall. Did you grow up out in Colorado? I didn't. I have moved a lot. One of the hardest questions people ask me is, where is my hometown? Because I've moved <laughs> a lot. Colorado was the longest place I've lived, so I was there for right at 20 years. So so you've moved pretty fluidly. This is, uh, by my count, your fourth Vail resort. Is that something that's encouraged within Vail? Do they, do they try to identify talent and move them around to the places where they would be most effective? Absolutely. I think it's about moving the leader where you can be most effective. And also we can, you know, as you move around to other resorts, you can see what works really well at another resort and, and help to bring those great ideas and help a resort that's already worked well work even better. So you kind of continually just shift your lens that much and to, to look at a resort with a, a new fresh eye 
is important to continually make those growth improvements into improving the so the guest experience is absolutely the best. So I'm I'm curious for your perspective here uh, as you move from the west from Summit County these huge destination resorts that do million skier visits or whatever it is a year and you come out east what translated really well from just a managerial operational standpoint and and what was just really different and that you had to adapt to when you came over from Keystone to Sunapee you know even though it's a lot of more guest visits at some of those resorts they also have the size right so mm-hmm. the number of acres that they have to ski on it is a lot more and so if you look at Mount Sunapee are now Mount Snow, we are still handling a lot of guests on smaller terrain. And so so what, what translates really well is to be able to look at, you know, lift lines, how lift lines flow, efficiency of, of skier traffic around the mountain or in the base lodges, and, and looking for those, those efficiencies there and how we manage or help manage anyway the 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 guest behavior on where they they travel, where they ski, how we can flow them the best way for the best possible experience. Because um, the you know the infrastructure is built to handle the various size um, guest visitation. So so that's I think the biggest translation. Um, I think you asked me then what are some of the maybe did you ask me what the difference was too? Yeah yeah well what are what are the just the differences in the experience of managing the mountain. How are the mountains different? Yeah, I think the the biggest difference, obviously, uh, where I was in the West in Colorado, that you start at, you know, almost ten thousand feet at your base area, and you go up from there. Is that we didn't get a lot of rain, and mm-hmm. so the rain, the icing that we dealt with on the lift, and lots of it last winter, um, was really different. Um, if we, you know, rain was rare where we were, and if it was, it would be kind of a lighter rain, not the big downpours that just, like, tear up your terrain, um, your snowpack, right, um, that mm-hmm. I experienced last winter. Yep. So that being said, I learned, one, that skiing in the rain is absolutely fantastic. The conditions were soft, and that mm-hmm. anyone that was brave enough to go out and ski in the rain – had them trails to the to themselves, and it was a fantastic guest experience. You'd run into other people on the mountains with just big grins on your faces. So I highly recommend <laughs> go skiing in the rain. Um, I love it. But but then on the other side of that, right, the lift icing problem mm-hmm. is uh, something obviously from a resort leadership side that we've got to develop plans around plans on how on how we communicate to our guests on what's going on. With the icing, when can we get and expect to de-ice them? How we have plans in place to de-ice the lifts? It's huge. It's really difficult work to de-ice the lift. Um, you know, you've got to climb every tower, um, bang on the ice. You got to clean off every chair. It's it's super difficult and hard work, and requires a a big trained workforce to get that done. So, I think that's from the the management side. That's very different. I'm curious, now that you've had a season in the East, if you were to go back West, is there anything that you would do different based upon what you've learned out here? I think that um, how the teams out here work together and, you know, people don't just stay in in one um, task or one job. The team's really well 
help each other out. If it snows, you can see everyone out there, regardless of what position they're in. Grab, grab a shovel and help snow. Grab a shovel and help shovel the snow, right? Mm-hmm. You can, you know, if uh, somebody, if the restaurants aren't that busy, you we might ask a busser to go outside and scan, and they're like, okay, sure, no problem. So they're not tied into to off you know oftentimes that that one role, right? They're they're willing to to move around and and help out in other areas, um, and so I would encourage you know all the Western resorts to to really look at that and to, to help out because there's always other needs and it's nice to to help out others. What, what do you think accounts for that cultural difference? Do you think it's just the smaller size of the mountains in the Northeast? Do you think it's just the way the mountains formed over time and the way that their teams developed? What, what do you think accounts for that? I think um, a couple of different things. One is that the size and the staffing size is is less, right? In the east of the smaller resort, you, the, you have the necessity to do a lot of different tasks. Two, I think that the passion that people have for the resorts here, whether it be our guests or um, the staff, they're – there's a, a deeper history and a deeper passion that people have for for the resort that that's their home resort. So it sounds like you're really getting really well acquainted with Northeast skiing and Northeast skiing culture. Uh, now that you've had that season at Mount Sunapee, what did you learn on the job over there that you think will help you to manage Mount Snow, which is a bigger mountain? Um, I think, uh, again, like making sure that we have a plan in place to address that icing is uh, is huge for us. Um, I think that's by far the, the biggest thing, and and also I, you know, at Mount Snow is known for its snowpack and its grooming, and you know the operational folks are, are still the operational folks that have been there a long time that have done all kinds of, of great, great things to to create a, a really good experience, and so to really leverage, you know, their knowledge. I don't know as much as that that groomer that's been grooming for 30 years does or that lift mechanic who's been on that lift. And so to really listen to to those people that, that do the job that are out in it every single day and to, to ensure that they know they have a voice in, in what the right decision is, is helpful too. So as you settle into Mount Snow, what do you see as the biggest operational challenge uh, that's different from what you experienced in Mount Sunapee last season? Um, you know, the complexity of Mount Snow is, is probably the, the biggest and to make sure that, you know, when you operate at multiple base areas, Sunapee just had one. Mount Snow has multiple base areas and, you know, almost two and a half times the size of acres that, you know, more, more lifts, more staff, more complexity. There's just more, more, more. And so, so that brings a lot of, complexity and opportunities for us. And so with that, when I talked about like staff sharing jobs or, you know, helping out in other areas, I think making sure that we have the communication in place from one base area to another, from one department to another, that communication is is key for us. So you look at Mount Snow and and I'm looking at the trail map right now. And like I said, in the introduction, you know, 20 chairlifts or 20 lifts, uh, just a huge footprint. When Vale approached you with this opportunity, you'd only been GM at Sunapee for about six months. Was there a part of you that just wanted to stay and get comfortable at Sunapee and develop that mountain rather than starting all over again at a different and more complex mountain down the road? 
Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I felt like we had some projects going at, at Motsunapi that I'd love to, to stay and finish through. But that being said, to, you know, to be um, asked to come over and to run one of the, you know, the premier resorts in the Northeast was was also um, super exciting. And, you know, I know, you know, the person that replaced me at um, Mount Sunapee is also a, a fantastic leader within Vail Resorts, and he and I have worked together in the past. So I have good confidence that that team is in great great hands there and, and has a good leader. And uh, so to come over here, for me personally, it was uh, very exciting. Are you looking forward, though, to settling into Mount Snow for some time now? I am. Yeah, so my hu- husband and I purchased a home in the area, and uh, we're loving getting to know the area and, and really the whole northeast. Um, you know, I, I'm anxious to get more involved in the community um, because I think that that community partnership and relationship is is super important for for the resort and for the community. Had you skied in the Northeast before coming out here to work at Sunapee? So um, I grew up just outside of Toronto in a little town called Oakville. And so I grew up skiing up off of Georgian Bay in mm-hmm. in a town called Collingwood. Um, so that, the, I don't know if that's technically considered the Northeast, um, but that's as close as, as I get to it. I think the conditions are probably very, very similar. I did come to Vermont as a senior in high school for my uh, my spring break trip was in Vermont. Nice. Where'd you go? Killington. Nice. And it was the time that, that it ski that it snowed every night and then was sunny during the day. So that's what I'm expecting from Vermont conditions. <laughs> it, look, when it's good, it's great. I, I mean, it's and, and folks know that here. It, it, it's it can be bad, but when it's good, it can be great. What's your? I'm just curious your impression so far of Northeast ski culture, and you know we don't have the the bomber conditions that they have out west. We don't have the huge mountains, but I think that there's a lot of passion here. And I'm just curious if if it's what you expected or or, or what your general impression is of the culture here in the Northeast around skiers. I think it's incredible the amount of of you know the passion that is from the employees, from the guests that come, the the longevity when you talk about, you know, yeah, you know, third generation coming to, to Mount Snow um, it is phenomenal. You just don't have that in the West. And, and I think, you know, like people always, you know, com- compare and contrast. And I'll say that, the, you know, the vertical at the mountains in the East is the same as it is in the West. You're just starting from a higher base up there. But, mm-hmm. I mean, there's long chairlift ride, there's long runs. It's fantastic skiing. So, but the, the people and the passion, again, and the history are something you just don't have in the West. So I'm uh, curious about you. You mentioned earlier you have an industrial engineering background. I just want to talk about this a little bit. So ski areas are basically giant engineering projects. How does that background help you manage these big, complex ski resorts? So the classical definition of an industrial engineering is an engineering profession that's concerned with optimization of processes and systems. And so ski areas have so many opportunities for optimization. Um, You know, lifts are just complex automated conveyor systems, but that we're moving people instead of parts. So the stake is so much higher on a lift. And so, Mm -hmm. so it's critical that we are 
you know, working on optimizing that process and that, that it, it flows really, really well. So also, you know, the flow on ski trails, you know, the queuing and lift lines, ticket lines, food lines, parts inventory, I could go on and on. But more than anything, I think the engineering background really helps to create a basis for logically evaluating and developing solutions for a broad variety of opportunities. Yeah, and and you have a a really big challenge ahead of you this year in rethinking all of that from the way it's kind of been fine-tuned over the last several decades. So, So let's talk about COVID operations a little bit. Vail has posted really clear operating guidance for its 34 North American resorts. Um, for folks who may not be familiar with those protocols, Tracy, can you just run over what to expect when you show up at Mount Snow this season as far as lodges, ski school, race programs, parking, et cetera? Sure. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think people know, hopefully, that reservations are going to be required for mountain access. And the reservations go live on 11.6 for pass holders. And epicpass.com, the website, has a lot of questions and answers that are related to that process. So I really encourage people to go to there to get the the real facts and the details on that. Um, Lodges, specifically, will also have capacity restrictions. Um, Lifts have capacity restrictions. The In a lift line, you'll see that there will be a ghost lane is what we're calling them. So an empty lane between the queues of people to provide that physical distancing. Um, that's something that people won't have seen in the past, and they might be going, why do you have empty lanes here that you're not using? It's really for that physical distancing that we want for our guests. Um, you know, people will need to wear cloth face coverings the whole time when they're in lift lines, when they're loading the lift, when they're riding the lift and they're unloading in our lodges. Um, the, you know, the state of Vermont in providing guidance for our lifts as well as our lodges, um, and that hasn't been released yet, but I think hopefully it will be coming out in the very near future. The other thing that um, is the state of Vermont's guiding us on is um, guests are, are going to be limited to 30 minutes in a lodge, um, and so – that's a little different than people that maybe have gone in and hung out in a lodge for a long time. So we're going to be encouraging guests to follow that. Um, I would also really encourage, you know, because of the lodge limitations to release their cars as a base this season to, to boot up at their cars, right? Not carry the big boot bag into the lodge and count on coming and going from the lodge. Cause we will have people monitoring and there could be lines to get into a lodge. Um, mm-hmm depending on, on what the state of Vermont guidance is. And so I think people just need to have that in their head, that lodge access is not going to be as easy maybe as it was in the past. Um, ski school competition teams, you know, there's information on that on the website too, but we're going to limit our group to sizes to six plus the instructor for a group lesson or the comp team. Um, so that's going to be a, a great guest experience actually for guests because historical, you know, group sizes can go up to 10 or more in a, in a lesson. Mm-hmm. So it's a fantastic experience. Um, reservations are going to be required for ski school as well. Um, participants will have to do a self-health screen prior to, to entering into the lesson. And then for the youngest guests, you know, the three- and the four-year-olds that I started out teaching to have a huge passion for, those are only going to be available through private lessons this year um, in one-hour sessions due to the attention and the closeness that those children require. Um, 
So, but all that being said, I think if we all really work together, you know, and and all of our employees, our guests are doing the right things with physical distancing, wearing cloth face coverings, um, ensuring that we don't come to work or to the ski area if we're sick at all, that we'll be able to have a, a really long and, and a great fun ski season. I want to dig into a couple of those points a little bit more, starting with capacity. Uh, I, I think it's important to point out that if you don't have an Epic Pass, you're not going to be able to ski Mount Snow at all or any other Vail property until I believe it's December 8th. You can correct me on that date if I'm wrong. Um, but once you reach that date and day tickets theoretically go on sale, what can you tell us about how Mount Snow is setting its daily capacity limits? Because that is a very busy mountain. Um, and with so many Epic Passes being sold, uh, it, it, I'm curious how you plan to to manage that traffic of the number of people on the mountains. Yeah, so um, that that's the whole reason for the reservations. Um, and we don't anticipate, and looking at, at all the different facts, um, we don't anticipate that that actual capacity will come into play on that many days throughout the season. You know, the historically busy busy days, Christmas, MLK, President, we anticipate hitting up against that capacity. And that's why that, that priority reservation for pass holders is so important. And that's why, you know, pass holders can have that that system before we open it up to guests. To come up with the actual number, though, we use a very data-driven approach that encompasses a lot of different factors, many of them we've spoken to, right, the lift capacity, the lodge capacity, parking, transportation, buses can only carry 50% of the people in them. Um, so there's a, a, a complete and thorough analysis that we do to develop this criteria, and then that's how we can look across our past visitation and see, you know, how often we're, we're going to bump against it. And, again, we don't anticipate bumping up against it, except for during those historically busy days. So it sounds like most folks with Epic Passes will be fine in most circumstances, but if people want to just buy lift tickets, are there going to be days when there just aren't individual lift tickets for sale after that December 8th date? You know, just like I said, right, um, we anticipate that we'll be able to accommodate everyone who wants to come and ski ride the majority of the days this season. But again, like Christmas weeks, MLK, presidents, that, those are when we anticipate bumping up against that capacity. So you have these epic passes. They're, they're really... Really good deal. Uh, $749 you get in Epic Local Pass, and that's unlimited access to Mount Snow, uh, plus tons of access out west. Uh, the Northeast Value Pass gets you pretty much everything but the holiday blackout periods for $619. Uh, th- those are really affordable. And in, in, in Vail's last earnings report, uh, the company pointed out that past sales were up 18%, and the Northeast, they said, was a particular area of strength. Uh, are there any concerns that there's going to be too many epic passes and that that formula as much thought as you're putting into it uh, may need to be tweaked further to accommodate all the people who want to ski there yeah it's always a balance right for us um and um one of the the great things about the epic pass is it does offer more variety than any other pass in the east so we really expect our guests to spread out and explore you know the seven resorts we have in new hampshire and vermont this season um, and, and we will continue to evaluate the capacity um, numbers on a regular basis. We're going to look at them as a team and actually as a whole company every single week to see what adjustments we need to make. So I want to shift over to the chairlift capacity here. Uh, Vail did outline protocols for six packs 
saying that unrelated singles or doubles could sit on opposite ends of those lifts. They didn't explicitly say anything about bubbles. Are there any special considerations for the Bluebird Express this season? Yeah, the Bluebird is still considered um, across the industry an, an open air lift. So it's not like a gondola that, um, you know, is totally enclosed. It maybe has some different considerations. Um, but the bubbles don't have any other considerations other than the capacity restraints that, that we'll have to follow. In the past, when I've been at Mount Snow on weekdays, sometimes they'll just run the Bluebird Express. Uh, Grand Summit will be shut off. Do you think to just spread people out a little more this year, you may have that redundant lift running a little more frequently? Yes, absolutely. Um, the Bluebird is our, our, you know, our main workhorse lift, um, and that's our key to, to the capacity. But um, we'll we'll evaluate and be ready to run, you know, the Grand Summit on on other days as well, if we see, you know, capacity dictates that. So you're looking at a Saturday, November 14th opening day. Last I saw, um, in past years. Mount Snow has opened as early as October. Uh, that was under when it was under the ownership of Peak Resorts. Now that you've shifted to Vail Resorts, is the mid-November opening probably a standard going forward? Or do you think that when COVID passes, you might try for that aggressive October type opening again, now that you have this enormous snowmaking plant that will allow you to do it if temperatures cooperate? Yeah, I think we'll have to see what the future seasons bring. Um, I don't know that I want to speculate on that at this time. But I'll say, you know, I did come from Keystone, and Keystone opened October 12th last year. So, you know, it's not out of the realm for us to, to say we would try and sneak in some early early record-breaking openings just as we did in the past. Nice. I'll be on the lookout. All right, going back to March, back to the COVID shutdown, uh, as we mentioned, you were ahead of Sun and P at the time. Uh, take us back to that week leading up to the shutdown on Saturday, March 14th. What were you thinking as you watched COVID unfold across the nation? And when did you start to think you'd be shutting the mountain down far earlier than most people had probably expected? You know, I was, um, you know, that week leading up to it, it was a, a pretty tense time, I think, just personally, because, you you know, watching the news on a regular basis, seeing cases climb. And I think you could, you know, feel my anxiety as well as everyone else's anxiety kind of rise. We were implementing things almost on a daily basis to try and try and stay open and try and keep um, our, our employees and our guests in the in the safest possible situation and then you still see keep, keep seeing cases climb and not necessarily at our resorts but around the company around the country so I think you know it was uh, it was uh, I'll say I'm a forever optimist and so I was I was super hopeful that we were would be able to remain open, um, especially because in the Northeast our our cases actually weren't weren't as high as what they were. I mean New York was high, but you know in Vermont, New Hampshire they were not. So I was super optimistic that maybe we could keep going, but unfortunately um, we were not able to. And and I absolutely think it was the right decision at the time to to shut down because we didn't have all the protocols that we have in place now heading into this winter. Um, so we were able to, as a company, you know, look through what happened in Australia, run a resort in Australia, test out a lot of different things, and operate that resort in Australia very safely from a COVID outbreak all summer long, our summer, their winter. Um, 
So I, I feel super confident that we will have a different experience going into to this winter with the, the protocols, the reservation systems, all the things we're doing to, to make sure we're having a, a long season. Yeah, we've really learned a lot. This is society, both in how it spreads and in how to manage it so that it spreads less or to, to minimize that spread. Uh, curious, when the call came in from Vail or when you got the news from Vail that the season was over, uh, where were you when you got that news and how did you react to that? Um, so we got it um, in the evening, I think, from, you know, we were on calls late um, in East Coast time anyway, you know, six, seven, eight o'clock, um, almost every night that week leading up prior to shutdown on different things we were trying, you know, to implement for the next morning. And we're going into early into the resort operations the next morning to implement the procedures where, you know, I can remember that Saturday that, you know, we shut down on Sunday. We were operating all day on that Saturday. That Saturday morning we were into our lodges and pulling out tables and chairs and trying to get physical distancing in our restaurants. You know, we'd put up new signs in the lifts. So we we were doing a lot of different stuff, and so that Saturday night, um, I was at home. knew we had a, a scheduled call um, when I I got the call that we were slowing down, um, and so then immediately uh, called you know the team that worked for me and let them know. So you're going from sixty to zero immediately, basically, right? And that is a pretty big contrast to the normal end of the ski season where you kind of have a date in mind. If you're one of these resorts that pushes it to the last minute, um, you, you have a little more time, but nonetheless, you know, the season is going to end in this case, it just went full stop. And meanwhile, we're also dealing with all of these government shutdowns and stay at home orders and social distancing mandates. Take us through how your team managed the, the breakdown of the resort and in a process that normally takes weeks or months and just had to kind of decommission everything. How did that go? How were they able to handle that? I think it was it was rough on teams and individuals. Um, you know, we would we started to immediately limit people in spaces. So if you look at, you know, how to how to shut down a kitchen, what do you do with all your food in your fridges? And we were able to donate a lot of perishable stuff to food banks, and we did that immediately to to clean out that and to help out others. And so that was helped people feel better about it, that we weren't just, you know, throwing stuff away. Um, you know, cleaning the facilities, we were, you know, it definitely took a few, a few people a lot longer than it would take the whole team to do it. Um, and then in some cases, we just walked away. I know, you know, we've got the, the tune shop at Mount Snow that has people's gear in it that drop their skis off on Saturday to have them tuned to pick up on Sunday and, and we still have their gear there because oh, wow. we haven't had that shop open all year. Um, and so it's opening up, uh, you know, November the 7th for the season. So people can come and get their gear and stuff like that. Same thing like guests had, had stuff in locker rooms that we've been trying to, to work with them to get out over the summer. So, cause we really didn't let guests, um, you think of returning employee uniforms, how we, there was a, just a lot of logistical things to work out that that took a lot of time, and um, and a lot of discussion on how we do that safely for our, our team, um, and make sure, and you know one of the the big things, and I think even heading into this winter, is making sure that we're keeping those lines of communication open, 
to ensure our employees and our guests uh, feel like we're we're doing the right thing and and they're staying they're feeling safe at least in their COVID procedures. It was a very strange time. There's no doubt about it, and in a tragic time in some ways too. Uh, you mentioned you have just this great grooming team down at Mount Snow, and early on in the pandemic, uh, twin brothers Leon and Cleon Boyd, um, who were longtime members of that grooming team, passed away from the virus. Uh, how does the team at Mount Snow cope with that loss? Yeah, unfortunately, I was never able to meet them. I was I've been shared some some videos, and I've heard nothing but amazing stories about these two. And I've met um, a lot of their different families that's still in the area. They've, you know, definitely left some very, very big shoes to, to fill at the resort. Um, so, you know, initially, like, we were supportive. There was some local, um, I'll say, like, drive-by parades in front of their residences and stuff like that that we, we were able to support with, you know, participate in as well and with Mount Snow vehicles. But there's definitely left some big shoes to fill. Is there some way to honor them on the mountain? Yeah, we're still working through those plans. Um, we expect to do something. We just haven't dialed on specifically on what that is yet. So it's been a, a time of big change for Mount Snow and everyone who works there. Uh, up until last year, they were part of the Peak Resorts conglomerate. Vale, of course, bought that entire company and all 17 of its ski areas last summer. I mean, it's been slowly integrating them into its ecosystem, the Epic Pass, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, that comes with some tough decisions and some adjustments. Uh, how is that integration going overall? I think it's going uh, really well. Um, you know, a big part of it that um, guests maybe don't see, but sometimes they feel, um, is, you know, the all the systems, right? Whether it be the how you buy your pass, you know, how your pass is scanned at the lift. Um, all of those kind of, of little details that touch our guests, but our employees like live it. And um, so we, we, again, we're able to open up this winter and do a lot of testing and debugging on those systems. We were selling lift tickets all summer for the scenic chairlift rides. We were scanning passes at the lift. Um, and so with the pass, you don't have to take it out of your, your pocket. It can scan right through your clothes which is something that Mount Snow didn't have before. Um, so that's going to be great, and I, I think it'll be a huge benefit. And, and our employees, after having all summer long to, to adopt to the systems, they're going to be ready to rock and roll. Um, and, the, again, we are opening our ticket office. I, I mentioned the rental shop, but we're also, I mean, the, the tune shop, but we're also opening our pass office and our ticket office Um on Saturday for the whole season. So if people are around in the area, they can come, you know, make sure their pass works, get everything ready to go. So then they're ready to go direct to lift on opening day. Okay. So we're not going to have to take our Epic pass out of our pocket every time we go to the lift this year. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> it's great. I'm curious cause you've been with Vail for a long time. Cause I, I was out West last year and um, hit Beaver Creek and uh, Keystone. And, um, I noticed Vail doesn't have any RFID gates. They, they have those scanners instead. What, what's the thinking behind that? I, I, I find the gates so much more efficient just from a skier point of view, but why does Vail favor those uh, scan guns that have to be held by a person all the time? It speaks a little bit to the connection. I told you that personally I like the connection. I think, um, you know, in this digital age, we spend so much time, you know, talking to computers, you know, communicating, you know, you get the, the the long you know 
uh, menus you have to press through. Having an actual person there, especially if there's, you know, any sort of a, an issue with your pass or anything, it is important. So you can actually talk to a guest. You can tell them hi. Um, if they see you back around and around again, you know, they can call you by name. They're going to tell you where's the best run. They know a lot of information on the mountain. So um, it's that personal experience. Yeah, one thing I do like about it is I've never been able to figure out why ski resorts put the RFID gates right before the chair instead of wait, like at the beginning of the maze. Because then if you have a problem, you're holding up, you know, dozens or hundreds of people behind you. But Vail seems to kind of position them a little farther out, which I appreciate. Yeah, it gives people time to form their groups and, and it actually can can help you you actually make the chair more efficient by filling more of the seats if you move stuff back from that, the load point. All right. Well, that, that's good news. Uh, glad to hear that. So I want to talk about the terrain at Mount Snow a little bit, uh, starting with the Corinthia pod. So for those who aren't familiar with Mount Snow, the whole Corinthia pod, which actually used to a long time ago be its own separate ski area. Uh, this is all one giant terrain park, one of the best in the Northeast, probably one of the best in the country. Um, just help us understand, Tracy, the importance of that pod to Mount Snow and how much it helps to define the experience there. Corinthia has a long and important heritage to Mount Snow, um, and it's something that we're definitely looking to keep around. We were running some numbers, and it actually acres-wise is one of the biggest terrain parks in the Vail Resorts Network, um, wow. which is, is a pretty impressive fact. Um, and it really helps to set our mountain apart, um, not only from our competitors, but from what other offerings are on the Epic Path. So we um, anticipate you know, keeping that to be one of the biggest and strongest in the country. Yeah, I'm not sure how much the general public appreciates how much work those parks take to build and maintain, especially one, as you were saying, the size of Corinthia. Can you help us understand who's in charge at Mount Snow of that part of the mountain? And, and what does that support crew look like as far as how many people there are and, and how much time they have to put in to keep that thing going all winter? So the train park rolls up through the mountain operations side of the business. And so David Moulton is the... Uh, Senior Director of Mountain Operations at Mount Snow. And then under him, he's got, you know, a strong team. Of, we've got somebody who's in charge of just terrain parks, grooming, and snowmaking. And so then all of those teams can work really closely together to make sure we're making the right amount of snow, that we're grooming it in the right ways, you know, the terrain park team building the, the best features we can have out there. Um, and then they've got you know, obviously hand crew during the day too. So the size of the team varies depending on, you know, what point we are in the season, but there's a, a strong team that's that's there to make that happen. And Mount Snow is one of the few mountains in the Northeast that still maintains a super pipe. A lot of ski areas have given up on that. Um, how hard is it to maintain that particular feature and, and how important is that to the overall identity of that park over at Corinthia? Yeah, so super pipes are super tricky um, in the ski world from the, the maintenance side, the, the amount of upkeep they take, um, how you have to cut them. Um, and last last year we saw a pipe with uh, what I've been told very fluctuating wall heights that was more approachable mm -hmm. for a lot of people. I don't know, you know, as – and I've um, – probably um, considered an advanced skier, right? Um, mm -hmm. But you can still, like, if, you, if you're standing on a headwall getting ready to jump off of something, or if you're standing at the top of a superpipe, 
you get that kind of like a sick feeling in your stomach sometimes, yeah. right? You're like, wow, right. it looks really intimidating. And most people can't even air out of a super pipe. And so to mm-hmm. find the balance between, you know, how much work goes into something and how many people actually enjoy it is something that, that we'll continue to, to work on and, and I think fine-tune and hone in on. And how much of that is complicated by, that maintenance is complicated by just the reality of Northeast weather? These freeze-thaw cycles, we get all the rain you were talking about earlier. Uh, how much more difficult does that make it? Because, you you know, you build all these jumps and if, if there's a freeze-thaw cycle, you got to really kind of resurface and, and in some cases regrade a lot of them. Yeah, it absolutely affects us. Um, and then that gets magnified that we have over 200 features on the hill at Mount Snow. Um, so, you know, that, that designated and devoted team that maintains it, um, they're always willing to jump in and put things back together, and, and they work really hard at it. So, But the, those freeze-thaw cycles really just don't help us. So outside of Corinthia and outside of the North Face, where you have a lot of black diamonds, Mount Snow is a pretty blue mountain, pretty intermediate. Uh, they have cut some more glades in recent years, which is a lot of fun. Uh, but you were, you were mentioning earlier the long-term plan. Is there any room to expand the footprint of Mount Snow in a way that would add more black diamond terrain, or are you pretty locked into the mountain that you have today? Yeah, rather than focusing, I think, on expansion, we're going to really focus on the terrain that we have at Mount Snow and build on, you know, the upgrades there with the expanded snowmaking and lifts to better utilize the acres that we have. And is there room for more glades? Like, we'll have to see about that. Yeah, we'll have to see about that. You know, there's a big process for you know, how you work there with Act 250 and the Forest Service because it's Forest Service land. So we'll have mm-hmm. to see about that. Right. Is the is the footprint that Mount Snow sits in now, is that your entire area that you're allowed to be in? Or or is there area that you could potentially build into if the will and the capital was there? With the current operating plan of the lease with the Forest Service, the current terrain is what we have. So you have, uh, as we've mentioned a couple of times, a really great grooming team there. Uh, the flip side of that is that Mount Snow doesn't really bump up too much. I get that the demographic in the Northeast favors that sort of terrain, uh, but as a mogul fan, I do wish there was a little bit more variety. Uh, what's your philosophy, Tracy, when it comes to grooming terrain and leaving some of it to bump up? Because I, I've had some great bump days out at Keystone, um, especially out in the Outback, where there just seems to be all, all kinds of stuff for all kinds of levels and, and interests. So so what's your philosophy on mountain maintenance as far as grooming goes? Yeah, I think when we've had a lot of discussions um, about this with the uh, Mountain Ops team and and how to provide that variety for, for everyone, um, because like you said, the majority of our guests do really like those, those groomers. Um, but can we also, you know, provide some terrain and, and maybe it moves around to to other ones that were grooming them once a week or every third day or something to provide that varied terrain. Um, so we're still working on, on the overall plan for that. And part of that plan would be the communication on how we get that word out to the guests um, because we don't want, one, a, somebody that only likes groomers to be surprised by it. And, two, we want people that like that kind of terrain to know that it's there. So that communication side as well as the plan is key. So we're working through that and having a lot of internal discussions on it um, because I think that that varied terrain is important um, as long as people are using it. Do you think that your experience just working out west for so long in Summit County where they do have so much of that kind of terrain, do you think that influences your approach a little bit here? 
Absolutely, it does. Um, and and just seeing you know some of the different things that have been done out there, even with like split grooming runs. Mm-hmm. So I think you know we'll continue to talk with the team and, and see what kind of a, approach works the best for Mount Snow, um, our terrain, and and the groomers. All right. Well, I thank you very much for your time today, Tracy. I am wishing you the best of luck with this very unusual season. Uh, it sounds like you've done a ton to prepare and are, are ready to go. So I will look forward to seeing you on the slopes in a couple of weeks. Great. Thanks. It was fun talking to you today. That's Tracy Bartles, Vice President and General Manager of Mount Snow, Vermont. Mount Snow Skiers. You're in very good shape under Tracy. She's going to take excellent care of that place. Thank you very much for that, Tracy. And thank you very much to Vail Resorts. Feels good to mix them in. I've been working on that one for a long time. Everyone at Vail has been great to work with, by the way. But they have a process, and we had to work through that. But glad we got that done. Thank you all very much for listening. If you want more of the storm, subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. If you're on the list, you're going to be the first to receive my next interview, and it is a big one. Saddleback General Manager Andy Shepard. I'm so pumped to see Saddleback come back online and hear Andy's vision for bringing it back to life. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester. Talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.